Greetings, everyone. Every one of you. We still have a lot of people out of town. Uh, Thanksgiving, I think, is the main reason people have taken a long weekend and gone various places. The Sharps are up in Arkansas, and I believe Ron Dart went down to Houston with some of Allie's folks, and other people are out of town, the Watkins and some of the rest of them. So we have, and it reminds me of the biblical statement Christ made, Fear not, little flock. It is my Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. Now, you people on the tape program cannot see what I'm talking about, but there are probably only about, I haven't counted, about 30 people or so in here today. Have you already shown them the new booklet, uh, Vance? I'll hold this up. We finally, after all of this time and many, many delays, have our brand new shipment of Europe and America in prophecy booklets that have been delivered, about 40,000 of them. And I've written a third-class letter which has gone out announcing the availability of this booklet, so I hope that those stocks are depleted very rapidly and we have to reorder. As you will see, it's uh, perhaps somewhat thicker than the Ten Commandments book. The exciting thing to me is that in the back part of it, uh, with Vance's able research and help, we have about three and one-half pages of a bibliography back here with about 96-some books and journals which are on the same subject and which relate to many of the aspects involving a proof that the United States and Britain are, in fact, part of Israel, as well as some of the North American European, I should say, Northern European nations. So if anyone really wants to get serious about researching that subject, they'd better settle in for about two or three years of very, very hard, studious reading, because it is not merely a fly-by-night idea that my father came along with. He quoted and did more than that, borrowed from, rather extensively, one major source, and that was Judah's scepter and Joseph's birthright. But that is only one of the 96-some books and booklets and smaller books and journals and so on that we refer to in this booklet. So I hope that all of you are going to reread it. If you've read my father's booklet some time ago, or some of the articles that came along, a couple of them about seven or eight years ago in the pages of the International News, uh, much of this is new material. I think it goes into areas that my father's booklet never really touched. Uh, some of the research is a little more extensive, so hopefully this will become, with maybe future editions and or uh, revisions as necessary as we go along, we could certainly add to it. As you can see, with all that bibliography, I could have written a book about that thick if we'd have had the, the time and the space to be able to do so. Uh, it should become one of the real mainstays of all of the booklets that we send out. In the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, the very last verse, is a rather frightening statement. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. My question is, how do you get your name into the book of life? What is the book of life? Does it really exist? And really, when you get right down to it, who are we kidding? I mean, we're sitting here today, let me, let me get this straight, we're sitting here today on the Sabbath day in a little sanctuary in the middle of an office building on some nondescript street in a nondescript little town called Tyler, Texas, in the East Piney Woods lands of East Texas, USA, and we people in this room are claiming that we have direct contact with and are known by name by the Creator God that set that huge sun up there in the sky that is shining down on us today. Now, you know, if I go out into my neighborhood and I see many of the people over there that are Baptists or Presbyterian or Congregationalists, and many of them are just sort of nothing because they go to a little Emerald Bay church where they have a minister who is there most of the time, but basically it is inter- or non-denominational and therefore sort of Congregationalist, and even that is a denomination, so... They really sort of stick very closely to the Christian living, faith, hope, and charity kind of sermons and don't really get very deeply into any kind of a doctrine. But when you go off to one of their funeral ceremonies, you hear them talking about the soul that is even now resting in the beatific vision and the bosom of the sun, and you hear the Catholic priest talking about, I'm going to get your Dominic, you get Dominic or two, whatever it is he's saying. Uh, going through all of the hokey-pokey with the funny signs and making the symbol of the cross and with a chalice and kind of splattering water on people. And you watch these people shifting from one foot to another. 
I've studied their faces. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've had to preach a lot of funerals, and I've attended many other funerals that have been preached by Protestants. And I've noticed how there is this awkward, kind of embarrassed, almost uh, unwilling and sometimes even resentful attitude that many people illustrate on their faces as they stand first on one foot and then the other, wondering when this fellow is going to get rid of his feels so they can get back and go about their daily business and get away from this embarrassing interlude where some holy Joe is allegedly saying some magical words which somehow put him in contact with the divinity. Very few people there in those ceremonies really understand and believe right down to the bottom of their being that that man up there over that corpse, over that body, when he prayer, you know, his prayer, he says, let us pray. Or Heavenly Father, which does, blah, blah, blah. And he hardly even changes his voice. I mean, or tone. You see it on TV all the time. Many of those people out there, just it's routine. And they understand that his voice is going as high as the ceiling. There are not very many people in there that are, that are struck with a sense of awe. That, oh, wait a minute now, he's communicating with God up there. So I better just watch it here. You know, I mean, uh, this is really serious business. He's talking to the great God in heaven above. They don't really think of it that way. So I just want to put things where they are and say, now, who are we kidding? Do we believe that that's who we are? Do we really make the claim that we can communicate with that God that hung the sun out there in the heavens? Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, and we're going to read this, not only read what he said about the church, but read up to it in its context, and then what he said to the disciples a little later on. I will build my church. Now, Mr. Dart, some years ago, preached a sermon in which he made very, very clear the ecclesia in the Greek means assembly. It means a group of sanctified, that's not a frightening word, merely means specially set apart and made holy in God's sight, called out individuals who form an assembly. They're not all in one place at any one given time. That's impossible because they were predicted to spread abroad and to be down through all generations. The gates of the grave, or Hades, were never to prevail against them. So through all ages there were to be people who were saints, or God's people, or Christ's own disciples. I know my sheep, he said, and they know my voice, even as I am known of my Father. Now it says here that our names, if we are Christian, if we are converted, if Jesus Christ of Nazareth is living his life over again within us, our name, complete with your middle name, your correct initial, spelled correctly. You know, when you go to cash a check, is this your current address? Is your name spelled correctly? Just exactly the way it appears on your birth certificate is written not only down at the credit union, not only over here in the United States, uh, CIA, FBI, and maybe the state police and a few other places, and the Social Security program where they've got that one number people are afraid of. My name's written all over the place. The military records, I could go get them. About everything that I did and said and thought, perhaps in the Navy. It's all there. But my name, scares me just to think about it, is written in heaven above. Let me ask you this question. Are you a telephone or are you a radio now, my analogy is going to be made clear as we go along because, you see, and I'm talking now not about radio telephones, but just telephones. The way I can communicate with you at your home is to dial your telephone number if you have one of those. Some people can't afford them, but if you have a telephone, I can dial you on the telephone. How does my voice reach your ear? Well, of course, it goes into a little speaker here, which has a diaphragm, which is electronically uh, picking up impulses as it is vibrating and it is transferring those impulses along an electrically charged line which has like a carrier uh, beam on it of a certain length, a certain wavelength to it, so to speak. It's electronically boosted from station to station, so you can even do it overseas. And I'm not talking now about satellite. I'm talking about ground telephonic lines. Outside my home are a bunch of ugly old creosoted poles with kind of sagging crossbars, a bunch of wires, and the birds sit on them. Now, if the bird would sit on that and then touch something else, the bird would be fried. But because the bird is not grounded, the bird can sit there with all kinds of electricity going through its feet, and it doesn't hurt the bird. 
but there's a line that comes directly to my house. Last year, lightning struck that line. It came right inside the house and blew up our television set and blew up my heating and air conditioning unit. And I had to call the insurance company. They came and replaced all of that. So if I call you, my voice is almost instantaneously going into that phone, into that wire, into the wall, through the wall, outside, up to the post, along those lines, to some substation, traveling almost instantly all the way up to Big Sandy or over to Longview or up here to Tyler somewhere, down the post into your home and into your telephone and vibrating a little thing in your ear. And my voice is activating that. Now that is a lateral communication, isn't it? You and I at that moment are connected laterally here on this earth. My voice on your direct line telephone is not being broadcast into the heavens. It is not going out over a transmitter on the top of a great tall antenna just electronically sending rapidly pulses into the atmosphere which are bouncing off the ionosphere and instantly coming back down to the earth and being picked up by a receiver. We're talking about a completely different set of circumstances, although both require electricity. When I say, are you a telephone or are you a radio, Jesus Christ of Nazareth made it very clear that the way we are fed spiritually is by direct contact with Almighty God in heaven above. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, I have a complete book on that subject, and if the publisher doesn't finally get that out and let people have it in the bookstores, I already have the author's rights back again, and I'm going to publish it and just give it away to our audiences on television because I want people to have it. I've, in the book, made it very clear how ironic it is that the very prayer which Jesus Christ gave shortly after he had said the publicans and the Pharisees loved to stand in street corners and public places and to be heard for their much speaking and their vain repetitions. But when you pray, do not pray that way, but go into your closet in secret. And when you pray, say, and then he gives an outline. And when he is finished with that, again there is a rejoinder against repetitive prayers. And so the world and general so-called Christendom and Protestantism has taken the very outline of prayer, made it into a talisman, repeats it endlessly. We even have scenes in World War II movies where people are in life rafts or sinking submarines or aircraft on their way down, and they're saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And, you know, because they think it's sort of the key which gets God's attention, which unlocks communication between you and God, and instantly, if you say the magical words, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, may as well be, you know, out of the dumb movie, where people, when they're little kids, they learn that the witch always says, abracadabra. Yeah, how many of you kids ever heard that? You ever heard abracadabra? You know what it means? You know what it means? The Latin for abra in Spanish is abrir, which means to open. Cadabra is merely a corruption of the word cadaver, which means corpse. And it's an evil, satanic, witchcraft statement, which means open corpse opening a dead body. Ugly, ugly. But people equate the Lord's Prayer with kind of a magic piece of gimmickry. They can get through to God if they say, Our Father who art in heaven. It's kind of like the rosary of the Catholics. So Jesus Christ of Nazareth gives us a sample prayer and says, When you pray, you address Him as your Father. In my book, I fully investigate through many, many pages the entire concept of who and what is God, how many members of the God family are they? Are there, uh, how ancient are they, uh, the fatherhood of God, the divinity of God, is there a trinity, are they dual, and how and in what way is he your father, and how can you claim to be his child, so that when you say our father, all of the rich meaning that he is your father floods into your mind. And then, who art in heaven? And how there are three heavens. There's the heaven that the Apostle Paul said is the third heaven. There's the heaven of the astral bodies, of the stars and the many, many galaxies and of our own solar system. And then there is the heaven of this earth, which is the air in which birds fly and clouds form. And the Bible allows for all three. And so when you say which art in heaven, you're projecting your thoughts to that heaven, even though we cannot know exactly where it is, where God dwells. Hallowed, holy, 
And then we go into the meanings of God's names, and there may be dozens of them in the Bible, of the many titles that list the qualities and the character and the works and the goodness and the mercy and the many qualities of character of God. So that when you're thinking on his name, it is a means of communication. Thy kingdom come, and all that that means, a chance in that chapter to explain everything there is about the kingdom of God. Now, let me just presuppose something here. You all are fairly aware of computers. You're aware of fiber optics. You've done a little study, I would assume. You've at least once or twice looked up fiber optics in an article and read about it. You know how they can take a little thing shaped like a pencil and kind of put it against a little piece of tape on a box when you come through to get something at Dillard's at a grocery store and it goes, beep, and the computer automatically takes that one off of inventory and rings up exactly how much it is and it's all being kept for them automatically. And those little old bent fibers in there with a little laser kind of a beam are actually reading it right off the tape and electronically it's all being done magically. Many of you are CB fans. You have little four, aren't they just four watts? Some of them just, I'm not really sure, but they're very low power. And about one mile is about all they've got. But they've got the illegal boosters that you can put underneath your seat. We call them a foot warmer. And you can turn them on. You're not really supposed to have them. And you can get out about 10 or 15 miles. Once in a while, crazy things happen with a little bitty four-watt Citizens Band radio. A couple of years ago, we were up in Colorado. We were clear up around... Craig, Colorado, which is uh, not too far this side of the Wyoming-Utah border. And we were talking away on the radio, and Benny was up ahead of us a few miles. And all of a sudden, somebody came in and began to talk with Benny, and we listened. We couldn't believe it. The guy was driving in downtown uh, Topeka, I believe it was, Kansas. And we got to figuring it was something like 700 miles away. So it does what is called skipping, and it will just and somehow there's a sort of a sky wave. Nobody understands it. I remember one time that I was literally up here at Big Sandy with a little CB radio hearing some people talking in Cuba. And they were transmitting on a little bitty four water and it was just kind of skipping, hitting the ionosphere and in a little narrow area, beaming down to Big Sandy. Now what I'm about to propose to you, I think, is not only backed up by science. I think it is the way that Almighty God has arranged to do things. You're familiar with kinetic energy and the fact that you can warm your hands by rubbing them together. The fact that a leech, when you go in the Burmese jungles, feels, and maybe even sees, I don't know, but senses the aura of heat that your body puts out. It triggers the release of the leech from the branch and he feels the heat of the body going under him and he just falls and next thing you know he's on you. Mosquitoes see you, not because you're wearing a red tie, but they see an aura of almost like infrared. They just see a glow of heat. And their little sensory organs fly right toward that heat because that's saying blood, you know, hot body. And they see this kinetic energy or this aura. A lot of people get into a lot of weird demoniacal concepts about vibrations and about the giving off of energy and about brain waves and about the ability of human beings may be separated by the oceans to communicate through the human mind. Stories of twins who felt a great pang when the twin was killed, or a mother who sat up in bed at night when her son was killed in warfare, and they are documented. And perhaps we do not understand all of that. But your brain, believe it or not, is like a small, maybe four-watt radio transmitter. Your brain emits waves of electrical energy. It really does. And they can be measured. It's not only the pulse, but the brain itself, which does emit waves, and they can be measured. They can actually put these little sensory things on your brain, and they can find out whether you're brain dead, or whether you may not do it to kids in school. Find out if they're sitting there dead from the neck up, or whether they're alert, and their brains are really, really working. What I'm going to submit to you is that prayer is more than just an emotion and is more than some magical series of words by which you kind of open the door to heaven above. It's certainly more than just rote memory or just routine or just going through a kind of a routine of going on your knees and saying a few words and getting up and feeling better. It has got to be more than a spiritual placebo 
It's got to be more than merely an exercise that you do endlessly through your Christian life that makes you feel better, like a sugar pill that you think has properties it does not. Either when you pray, you are in communication with God up there, or you're not. Now, either I called you on the telephone last week, or I did not. Axiomatic, fait accompli, absolute, no question about it. That's an absolute statement. I didn't call you, did I? Did I call you this morning, Mr. Van Stinson? Yes, I did. I wanted to find out, you know, who was where, what was going on, what the schedule was supposed to be. I wasn't really certain. I did call Mr. Van Stinson this morning on the telephone. Lateral communication. If we were to have an angel suddenly appear in this room, that angel were to turn to you and call out your name, say, did you call your Heavenly Father this morning? Now, I can prove that I called Van Stinson because I can get out here to the telephone office. It's going to show up next month on my bill. And there's going to be his number right there, just automatic. The computer's find out exactly that my number dialed his number and the length of time and the exact sense down to the penny that they're going to charge me for that call is going to show up on my bill. Will an angel be able to figure out how long you spent in communicating with Almighty God in heaven above in the last week or the last month or the last year? Let me tell you, he is keeping records far more accurate than the telephone company. And the bill, one way or the other, is far more serious than the dollars and cents that we earn to pay our utilities company for the use of their telephone. Let's go to the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew right quickly. He was warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then when he came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, verse 13, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He wanted to know what's the latest rumor. And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. And, of course, there were people just dumb enough to believe it. And some, Elijah. There was the school of Elijah, and people were dumb enough to believe it. We had a guy here some months ago who'd sat down at the feet of some lady he thought was a prophetess. And he was really all excited. The Mexicans are coming. The Mexicans are coming. They're going to invade us any moment. A couple of clippings, a couple of sheriffs down here have said that the Mexicans are just gathering. I mean, they're right here. Hordes of them right by the border. Here they come, man. The Mexicans are coming. Oh, I see. Suddenly the United States does not have any nuclear arms, and we don't have helicopter gunships, and we don't have ICBMs and IRBMs, and we don't have any, any modern-day weapons. Suddenly we're reverting back to World War I. And the way we go under as a nation now has nothing to do with world trade. It has nothing to do with these gigantic strategic and tactical weapons. It's just a bunch of Mexicans waving rakes and hoes and guns coming across our border, and they're headed for Texas. This was a spiritual doctrine. And this fellow believed it. And he had literature to prove it. He wanted to pass it out here. Well, because the Bible tells me to avoid vain babblings, we avoided them. Showed him where the door was. Said it's next place down the street. Try some other church. We don't need that here. You can always find somebody to propose something. These were the proverbial courthouse steps dwellers. These were the barber chair philosophers. These were the second martini for lunch bunch philosophizing about who was who and what was going on. These were, these were the Monday morning quarterbacks of the game, and these were the armchair politicians. That Jesus of Nazareth, that guy, oh, he's Elijah. Oh, really? And so there were those who believed it. Some of them thought he was Jeremiah. And some, it says, one of the prophets. Take your pick. It was probably the school of Amos and the school of Obadiah. Who knows? Maybe somebody thought he was Jonah. And there were people dumb enough to believe it. I always like to get those things in because why miss it? It's in the Bible, and the Bible teaches us about human nature, about the foibles of human nature. But he said, well, who do you say that I am? What do you say about me? And Simon Peter and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said... Blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that you're Peter. Now, you see, you haven't read it that way before. Peter says, you're the Christ. And Christ says, and you're the rock. You're the pebble. It's a, it's a quick rejoinder here, right back. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. All right, fine. The Spirit reve revealed that, not, not flesh and blood, but you are the pebble. And I say unto you that on this Petra, this rock, 
This Christ, which you just called me, I will build my church. And plenty of research is available to prove the difference between the feminine, which is Petra, and the masculine, which is Petros. And that the feminine, in this case, because as I've explained, many of the Romance languages, including Greek and so on, had gender in connection with certain objects and so on. And the Petra meant a great monolith, like a whole craggy side of a mountain, where Petros merely meant a pebble. And there is a very distinct difference in the spelling of the two Greek words. So Christ is not saying he would build his church on the foundation of Peter, but I will build my church on the foundation which is Christ. And there are many other scriptures, Colossians 1.18 and so many others that I have in the booklet on the church, where is the true church you can read, that prove that Jesus Christ is the head of his church, not Peter. And the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whosoever, whatsoever, rather, you shall bind on earth, and that is in accord with his will, not outside of the will of God, but certainly there were many judgments, many decisions, many administrative decisions down through the ages which have had to be made. Where shall we keep the feast? To this day, people will ask questions and even get upset about it. Well, who decides where we go to keep the feast? We do, here in Tyler. We do. We have brethren out there who suggest this would be a great place. Some of the ministers say, I've got a great idea. If it looks great to us, we go look at it. And so we try to say, which would serve the greatest number of God's people the most economically, would be the best site for the feast with all the things that go into making a wonderful feast, and in a kind of a committee decision, everybody voices an opinion, and three, four, five of us say, that looks great, and we have the feast there. You know of a better way to do it. I mean, we really haven't got time to vote on it, so that's the way we do it. But there are all sorts of decisions. Why do we meet at 2 o'clock? Why not 1? Why do we meet here? Why not in a rented building? All kinds of decisions. Why do you have coffee? The Mormons don't. You know, I can just think of all kinds of very great decisions that somebody's got to make a decision. So God said, Christ said to Peter, you will bind things on earth and we'll back you up in heaven and whatever you will loose on earth and permit or allow, not contrary to God's will, within the broad parameters of his will, will be loosed and allowed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ because it was not his time. Let's go to the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew and notice the very first verse, at that same time came the disciples, plural, all of them. Now he's not in private conversation with Peter, James, and John or with Peter only, but all of them. They showed the child was like a child of the kingdom and warned them against offending these little ones. Verse 7. And then he said, Take heed that you despise, verse 10, not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And then he talked about the sheep that had gone astray, still talking to the disciples. And then about brothers who have problems, verse 15. And then finally he said, in verse 18, still talking to all the disciples, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth. He's not just talking to Peter, he's talking to all of them. Repeating the very same statement, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree, on earth is touching anything. Notice two, not just one, not Peter, but any two of them. Meaning basically that those two would be in isolation. If all of them were there, they should all be informed and all be involved. Touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done to them for my Father which is in heaven, or of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, the key, there am I in the midst of them. And then, of course, Peter asked the question about being forgiven. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is a very powerful name. I have some experience in my past with not only seeing that name, hearing it, and seeing what happened as I heard that name being pronounced, but in my own personal case, literally being released from the clutches or the hold of an evil spirit by the thought, by the mental thought of the name of Christ, and then instantly that it let go, blurting at the top of my lungs the name of Christ and rebuking this spirit 
and then hearing the underneath of my home, which only had a crawl space that a little cat could get under, sound like somebody had a broomstick going back and forth under it, and then hear my son David in the next room, old little baby boy about two years of age, scream in terror. And my wife and I had to run in there and kneel by the bed and pray at the top of our lungs and asking for protection from Almighty God. My dad didn't want to believe the next day when I told him what had happened to me, and my muscles in my back were stiff and sore and ached from what had happened while I was lying flat in my back in bed and suddenly was just petrified, absolutely paralyzed, could not move, could not speak. Somebody say, you had an epileptic fit. Well, when I found out that about six or seven, I forget how many now, uh, other people, I can remember some of their names and I won't list them here, one professor, two other students, one was a girl that lived around the corner, uh, two of whom later became ministers, two of the men. But there were a group in that college campus on that same night that had the identical experience. No one is ever going to tell me, not with my veins full of sodium pentothal, not with a bayonet at my chest, that I didn't have that experience. So when some sacred names person comes to me and says, you can never get through to Christ unless you say, Yahshua... I'll just say, I didn't know that back then. And so I thought of the name of Jesus Christ. And that spirit left, and then left my home. And we began to pray about it, and sure enough, some of the people who were there, there were a couple of weirdos there, and I won't go into that because I don't even like to think back on it, a guy who showed up to come to the college driving a hearse, and who had some rather weird friends, and I think they were the conduit. But certainly I saw, if you would say, in a negative sense, because Jesus Christ of Nazareth cast demons out, and others have attempted to do it by using his name. And somebody said, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I adjure you, and got the clothes ripped off of him. There have been cases where it just didn't work because they didn't have that authority. But when Jesus Christ says over and over again, if you ask something in my name, and he talks about how they are consecrated, gathered together, and are constituted as his body in his name. It means by his authority, but if you ever want the idea of what is the conduit, what is the connector, what is the name which opens your communications channel to Almighty God in heaven above, you must stop thinking at the end of your prayer, when you say in Jesus' name, that it's merely spiritual flavor. It is not cinnamon, it is not salt and pepper, it is profoundly important. And at the beginning of your prayer, when you pray to God, and you begin to address Him as your Father in heaven, unless you are thinking in all of those points of His magnificent fatherhood, of what heaven looks like, thinking actively, maybe you better get your Bible open and turn back to some of those chapters in Revelation about the 24 elders who throw down their crowns and say, Holy and righteous art thou, O Lord God Almighty, because you have judged thus, and get a picture in your mind of what heaven looks like, and then begin to address the magnificent, brilliant God with Christ at his right hand, blazing like the sun in the midst of all of that splendor, and talk to him directly through your own channel with your little transmitter, which is like a radio. You have your own assigned frequency. I believe that Almighty God is able to communicate with each of us almost like a carrier wave when we get on our knees in the right attitude and communicate with Him. And otherwise, I do not believe we are communicating at all. Because radio, although this word is archaic, is ethereal, meaning right through the walls. You know, you can, with a walkie-talkie, be in the basement of a big concrete building and talk to somebody in the seventh floor. And, of course, right here in this room, and I won't belabor this, I've said it before, there are hundreds and hundreds of frequencies. All the VHF and UHF and the FM and the, all of the other frequencies that would be available in the entire spectra, including some of the military bands that are used, and the very low-frequency waves I could take and plug into the wall our little navigational instrument called a Loran C and actually show you that these computers would be picking up exactly the signals from radio stations across here that would tell you exactly what the latitude longitude of a certain place inside this room is right this minute. And if you had a little handheld transistor, you could be picking up all kinds of frequencies, couldn't you? 
And they're not seen, they're not heard because they're outside the human ear, the wavelength that our ear picks up. So when you pray, I hope you don't think you're talking to the inside of your own head or you're merely talking to the shoes in your closet or the pattern on your rug. I hope that you understand that you are talking to your Father who is in heaven above. And if you really do get through to Him, and then you do so in the name of Jesus Christ, Christ Himself says things can happen which can be so monumental that He gave the statement that even a mountain could be thrown into the sea if someone had such belief that they had the absolute assurance and this is talking about something which in this case would be good, not destructive, that it would happen. That whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do. Are you, as I said, a telephone, or are you a radio? Now, most cults will say you are a telephone, and I operate the switchboard, and I sit there as the operator, and you call through me. And when you pick up your spiritual telephone and you dial the number of your Heavenly Father, the only way you're going to get there is to go through my switchboard. And I'll say, oh, okay, well, I guess, now wait a minute, let me check the computer. What's his name? Is he still in? Is he, is he one of the valid people? Well, all right, now I'll, I'll plug it in. Go ahead, you can talk to him now. Now, I know I'm carrying that a little further than some people would like me to carry it. But this statement about sticking with the body and letting God work it out and staying together and staying in the group is presupposing a communication to God which is at all times lateral and which depends upon your position as a lay member in relationship to your position with the church and with its hierarchy and with its computer and its mailing list and whether or not you are a member in good standing so far as other people are concerned. Now, they also have the power to pull your plug, don't they? You don't act right, you don't look right, you don't dress right. I just don't like the look on your face. I can pull your plug. And if I'm some little Lord Fauntleroy up in a pulpit preaching about you women wearing pantsuits or you men with your long sideburns or whatever else just really turns me off, I can decide to tell you, don't come back to church. Now, you could go on to ask some embarrassing question, but you wouldn't want to do that because you'd be scared after death. You could say, does that mean I can't pray in the interim? Does it do me any good to pray? Just tell me that. Now, I can't come to church, so I'm cut off, right? And as of this moment, the switch is thrown. I'm on my way now to hell. I'm on my way to Gehenna Fire, where before I was on my way to the kingdom of God. You just threw the switch. Don't come back to church until you solve your problem. You've got a spiritual problem. You need spiritual help. Where's the best place to get it? Church. Where should you not come? Church. Solve it by yourself. Clean up that mess. Come back to church all clean and white. Problem solved. We will accept you again. Throw the switch, and once again, you're on the way to the kingdom of heaven. I submit to you that when Jesus Christ said, and I quote, this is in Mark 14, 27, and the succeeding verses, when he said that I shall smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and then you read in the book of Acts of how James, the brother of John, was beheaded and how a great persecution came against the church and they were all scattered and there was no hierarchy and there was no cohesiveness and there was no organizational structure and there was no mailing list and there were no telephones and there were no radios and these scattered people huddled in fear had to be like little radios. They couldn't be like telephones because they couldn't even communicate with each other. They could only communicate with God and the close family members or whoever happened to be there. They were scattered. And Christ predicted that they would be scattered. What did he say their salvation was if that should occur? Of what were they to beware? Let's go to Acts, the 20th chapter, and refresh our memory a little bit because the Apostle Paul wrestled all of his life with this problem. He wrote about it. He cried about it. He wrote to Timothy in great detail about what was going to occur. You know, the literature of the New Testament is the literature of that period of time from the time of the ascension of Christ until the time of the close of the first century of impending apostasy. 
of false teachers and preachers, of these people who were the Nicolaitans, of the letters to the churches in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, that told of all this apostasy, Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, a predicted man of sin who was to stand and claim that he was very God, Simon Amagus and all of his uh, cohorts who began to pervert the Word of God and try to seize power in the church. And, of course, history now is there for us to study. And the famous lost century from the close of the first to the opening of the third, where there is virtually no information about what happened to the church. But by the time a little bit of history comes through in the beginning of the third century, we see a completely different church than the one the apostles were really over. One man like Irenaeus, who was a student of Polycarp, or of John, said to be even a student of John along with Polycarp, had in his writings certain vestiges of the truth, including the rejection of the Trinity. But others were beginning to get into all this much speaking against which Paul was writing Timothy and warning him about it. In verse 28 of the 20th chapter of Acts, he said to these Ephesian elders kneeling on the shore, warning some of the leaders of a large church in Ephesus, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops or presbyters, in other words, like a pastor, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Interesting statement, something all of us as ministers need to understand. We didn't raise up the church. It is not our church. It isn't my church. It isn't my congregation. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He bought it with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves. Now, the wolves were from without. They were people who were covetous of the power, the money, uh, whatever, just the vanity of wanting to be up there as a kind of a leader, having power over people. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Perverse things. And this connotes deliberate action on their part. We always want to feel that people are sincere, but frankly, some people aren't. Frankly, they just aren't. Some people aren't. And from the time I was a little kid, watching all the infighting and the politics in that little church up in Oregon, I've seen it from the time of my earliest recollection, from the time I was three, four, and five years of age. I've heard of nothing but dissension, and of splits, and all kinds of divisions, and of arguments over tithes, and who owned the church, and arguments about doctrine, and all kinds of power struggles. For my entire life I've seen it. We like to think that churches divide over great big issues, you know, who and what is God, or, or, or baptism, or salvation, or something. Why, no, they've divided over whether you ought to have a piano in church, or whether a woman ought to wear a hat, or whatever. There have been all sorts of really gigantic issues that have divided churches. I find it ironic, almost beyond belief, that I was accused of being a liberal, watering down doctrine, and the two major things were healing and makeup and things like this. And my father wrote long after my ouster that somehow makeup had been run in by some kind of a document I gave him, absolutely made up out of whole cloth, never happened. It'll never be found because it doesn't exist. And I would challenge him to produce it because it's never been written. I simply never wrote a word about makeup. He changed it while I was out of town. But nevertheless, now I understand it's being put back in. And of course, they have uh, taken my article that I helped write plagiarized it and put the leader's name on it, whose name I shall not pronounce, and it appeared in the front page of the church newspaper that I helped write it. Now they've come along, except that they've gone further than I would ever be willing to go by really doing away with the concept that our physical healing is connected in some way with the stripes which afflicted Christ's body. But nevertheless, it is ironic beyond belief to me that I should be ousted from my father's side for all these liberal ideas which are now one by one, little by little, being put into the parent organization. Ironic beyond belief. That says to me that somebody, somewhere, is a crook. But I will not elaborate on that. I mean, maybe he didn't know the document that was right there beside the typewriter had been a part of the Systematic Theology Project. Maybe he had tunnel vision. Maybe he just didn't know that when he quoted dozens and dozens of places, you know, dozens and dozens, at least a dozen or more. I've got a couple of copies that are very carefully done by people who researched it, and in many cases the periods and commas are all in place. So it's interesting. I've not only seen it in my youth, 
and seen it all the way down through my experience in Christ's ministry, but I've seen it in the experience of these last ten and a half years in the Church of God International, of men seeking to draw away disciples after themselves. And it, no doubt, will occur again. I have not seen the last of it because I have not seen the last of human nature. And Christ said it would be this way. Notice what Paul said. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years... Now, the Holy Spirit inspired him to say this, so this is not exaggeration. I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. How did he feel about it? How did Paul feel about it? Was it something that really got to him? I mean, he was pretty steamed up. He was pretty emotional about it, wasn't he? Talking to people he loved. I, I know. I've, I've experienced that. I know the feeling. I can list a lot of names, like, you know, Mr. Albert Portoon and on and on. I could list a whole bunch of them, of men with whom I have shed tears. When he sat with me in a breakfast cafe over in Pasadena and told me what my father had said to him behind my back, which so exploded Mr. Portoon's mind, in a sense, that he just couldn't believe that my dad was so jealous and so angry toward me when he was saying publicly, my son and I are back to back and together. But when he told Mr. Portoon that, Al and I sat and cried together. But Al Portoon is not here in the Church of God International. He was for about six months or so back in about 1979. But he is not anymore. Certainly, he never did try to draw away disciples after himself. I'm not saying that. I want to make that very clear. Not once did he ever do that to my knowledge, and I doubt if he ever would do it. I'm just saying I know what it means to love a beloved brother to the point that you can sit and talk about things happening in the church or to the brethren and actually sit there and cry like a little child together. And when Paul was actually crying with these brethren, with these ministers, young men that he had ordained and watched them come up and develop. He really felt deeply about what was going to take place in the church. And he was trying to forewarn them. He didn't want it to occur. But it happened anyway. Then remember, in Second Thessalonians, I'll turn there quickly because some of the language is very, very vague. I think most of you are quite well aware of this. In Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, that word letteth, is an old King James English word that really obscures the meaning. But he told them not to be disturbed or shaken and troubled in mind as that the day of Christ was at hand because nobody should be deceiving them. That day was not going to come except, in verse 3, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, and that there was to be a great falling away first, he said, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Don't you remember when I was with you? I told you. I warned you about these things. And now we know what it is that withholds, restrains, or holds this back, prevents it from developing right now, that he might be revealed in his time, when it's time, when God allows it. For the mystery of lawlessness, the unseen hidden poison, the leavening, the mystery of iniquity, is already at work. Only he who restrains, Paul is saying, meaning himself, will continue to restrain until ginomai is the Greek word, until he be taken out of the way, I do not think is preferred. And I think the diaglot and other sources show that it should read until he arise in the midst. And the meaning of that verse is that the evil was inside the church and would become evident for what it was when the one who was trying to stave it off, and like Peter and the dyke with only two thumbs and fourteen holes was trying to prevent it, was removed, and then the evil would become evident for what it was inside the church. And it happened in the first century that the original pure parent church became wholly, utterly corrupt and men like Diotrephes took over the pulpits and refused to allow the true worshipers inside. And what had once been God's true church became a church of Satan the devil. And the true church was scattered, disappeared from history largely, and can only be found in little bits and fragments in things like the Key of Truth by the Bogomils and the Valdensians and other places. 
but the great big public church that marched on down through history that had the buildings and the presbytery and the hierarchy and the money and the power and the control. It, it's visible there in history. But God's true church, hard to find. You can only find little clues by what its enemies said about it. And you've got to take that with a big grain of salt when you research it. But then, little by little, you'll be able to find that sure enough, Jesus Christ did build his church, and sure enough, he kept his promise, and sure enough, they are still around today. But because many of those early New Testament Christians did not believe that their connection was like an analogy that we can use today in modern times to that of a telephone, that their connection to Almighty God in heaven was not laterally through a human being, but as Paul wrote in the entirety of the book of Hebrews, was directly through a high priest in heaven above who sits at the right hand of God the Father, who receives your messages and communicates and turns to his Father and conveys them, and that you, by the use of his name, are instantly put in touch with the Father. You do not need to pray to Christ who then turns to your Father. I'm not suggesting that. You pray directly to the Father, but you do so in Christ's name. And that is your channel. That is the wavelength that you select. You pray in the name of Christ to God the Father. And you're like a little radio transmitter, and you have your own private, secret, if you will, channel. You can sit there in your chair and be praying to God, and God will hear Christ could do so in the mind. He could pray and then lift up his voice and say, I thank you that you've heard me, but he didn't say anything before that time. And I know you hear me always, but I said it because of those standing about, and then a great miracle occurred. So Jesus Christ of Nazareth is our conduit by which we, if we are more like a radio than we are a telephone, can individually and personally communicate with our Father which is in heaven. Sometime you ought to wade through the New Testament with examples such as the one in Romans 16. Brethren, when you see some other brother who is doing this and that, take note of such an one and have no further fellowship with him. And look to find in how many cases does God place personal responsibility on your shoulders for the development of your personal character so that you may qualify to be in his kingdom and that you are not conscripted into a military organization marching to the same tune, taking the same length steps, wearing a uniform with your helmet jouncing on your head to the baton of a dictator who is marching you off you know not where, but that you are absolutely unique, you are absolutely individual, you are like a radio. You have your own sending set and your receiving set and I don't know anything about it. I don't know whether you prayed to Almighty God the Father this morning or last night or yesterday. I know that I called Vance Stinson on the phone, and I can prove it. And Vance can testify because he was on the other end. Is your name written in heaven? Is it spelled right? Middle name in place? If it is, there are documents being kept that are just as absolutely accurate as any computer that's ever been made. And at the end of time, we will be able to see how many calls you made and how long you stayed on the line.